Okay, good evening. I'm broadcasting live August 6th from Stony Creek, Ontario. And so we're live both on YouTube and on Meditation Plus. I'm not taking questions on YouTube anymore. It's too, a little bit too chaotic, too open. So if you want to ask questions, you have to go to meditation.sirimangalo.org. And you have to ask questions live, unfortunately. For now, that's the only way to ask questions here. So here we've been doing our meditation. And now we come together to look at this quote. And we have a quote on the carpenter. It's actually an interesting, it's a part of a, part of a larger sutta. Talking about hens as well. So it starts off not just talking about the carpenter, but he says, first of all, suppose there were a hen with eight, 10, 12 eggs, Suppose she had these eggs and she was looking to hatch, but she hadn't nurtured them, she hadn't sat on them, she'd abandoned them, basically. But then she might later on look, see them and wonder to herself when they're going to hatch. And she might wish, oh, may, they, may, may my chicks be able to hatch and, and come out of their eggs out of their shelves but no matter how much she wished it wouldn't happen they would they would have already been dead that's not what the Zuda says the Zuda just says you can't expect them to come out of, of their shells because they haven't been covered incubated or nurtured and likewise when a bhikkhu does not dwell devel devoted to development even though he might wish that he be should become liberated if you don't actually practice wishing isn't of any use of any value on the other hand when you're dwelling devoted in in develop devoted to development when you devote yourself to the development of the mind the buddha says even though even though no such wish even though he might not wish, he or she might not wish. Oh, may I be free from suffering. Oh, may I be freed from the defilements. But still, because they're devoted to development, they become free. I mean, it's not a, a difficult teaching to understand. It's quite simple, but it's important. It's, something, it's a reminder to us 
that no, it's not good enough to wish because we find ourselves wishing. I wish I could meditate more. I wish I were better at meditation. I wish I could be free from suffering. Oh, I wish I could be such a, I wish I could be a better person. Alcoholics, drug addicts wish these things, but wishing has no, no benefit, no value. Clearly, regardless of whether one, as the Buddha is saying, regardless of whether you wish or not, makes no difference. Which is interesting. There's this um, question that goes around and people ask, it's asked again and again. If Buddhism is all about giving up wanting, what, what's this about wanting? What about wanting to meditate? How can you possibly uh, progress without wanting? This is the key. You see, there's no... Meditation isn't based on desire. In fact, the more you meditate, the less you have any desired goal or intention to become anything. You do it more as a matter of course and out of wisdom, out of an understanding that it's the right thing to do. Just like the hen. The hen sits on the eggs without any wish that they might hatch, just doing it because that's the duty to, duty of the hen. And regardless of the fact that she has made no wish, in due, in due time the eggs hatch. And then he says, when a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice looks at the handle of his ads, he sees the impressions of his fingers and his thumb, but he does not know so much of the ad's handle has been worn away today, so much yesterday, so much earlier. But I can't, you, he wears away whatever this ad's is, it's one of these carpenter's tools, right? It's weared, worn away, and so he looks at it one day and he sees that it's worn away. But he can't say, he, he can't use it for a day and say, wow, look, today it was worn away. So, the point being made here is how how uh, how minute are the changes how fine are the the changes that are, that come about through meditation that from one day to the next you might not see the difference but you'll wake up one day and or you'll be one day in a conflict situation and you'll realize you're handling yourself better than you were before. You'll realize that as a result of the benefits of the meditation, you've changed. But you couldn't say when the change, no, it was so gradual. That's the idea being passed on here. But when it has worn away, the knowledge occurs to him that it has worn away. So too, because when a bhikkhu dwells devoted to development, even though no such knowledge occurs to him, so much of my taints have been worn away today, so much yesterday, so much earlier. Yet when they are worn away, the knowledge occurs to him that they've been worn away. And more, there's more to the sutta actually. This is from the Sanyutta Nikaya. It says, I'm reading bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. I've got them on this uh, on the computer. Suppose because there were a seafaring ship bound with rigging that had been worn away in the water for six months. 
It would be hauled up on dry land during the cold season and its rigging would be further attacked by wind and sun. Inundated by rain from a rain cloud, the rigging would, e rigging would easily collapse and rot away. So too bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu dwells devoted to development, his fetters easily collapse and rot away. So there's another part to the process. It's not just of wearing away like the ads handle. It's a eroding, an eroding until there's a collapse. Because there is actually a moment of collapse in the practice. You get to a point where your defilements, where you enter into nibbana. It's, there's, there's such a weakness that suddenly there's a collapse. So just like a ship that rots when uh, it's hauled up onto dry land and eventually rots and collapses. So to this frame, this samsara that we find ourselves in, if we stop, if we take it out of, the, of its element and we take away the fuel that keeps it going, eventually it will collapse and we'll be free from it. So it's um, it's a teaching to perhaps not be so impatient or not be so goal-oriented as we might otherwise, to remind us not to be focused on results or demanding to 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 have some change like a magical pill. This isn't a game or it isn't a, it's not a machine. This is reality. The reality here where you're sitting, you know, your experience is, it's real. It's not just going to change because you want it to. And it's not uh, just going to magically go, be, go at the moment when you first start to meditate. You know. It's not like unlocking a, door and then it's open it's about reality and reality is made up of so many conglomerate like aggregates of, of habits we have to tear them down and change them and it's natural it's 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 real it's happening right here and now we're developing habits we're changing our habits so meditation is about a specific type of habit form of a habit cultivation cultivating a habit of clarity but that habit is going to conflict with a habit of of delusion of ignorance of defilement what we so this it also i think it can be a little bit discouraging in this case because then you ask well how do i know that i'm progressing on the path this is another common question and well you may not know moment to moment that you're progressing you may not be able to see the repercussions of the practice don't let that um, don't let that blind you to the fact that you are that that the, of the greatness of the practice in the moment because what you can see moment to moment is that in the moment when you are truly mindful your mind becomes clear. You you change. You feel that that's where you feel like a lock. 
like a key in the lock you catch it and and you've broken a chain you've you've released the, the chain by freeing yourself from the lock it's like untying a knot or it's figuring out a puzzle like one of those puzzles where you turn things just right and then it opens and, and that you can see moment to moment you get something every time you meditate if you don't learn something or gain some change something about yourself if you don't unlock something there you weren't really meditating i think i can safely say that so it's not to say this is going to happen every time you sit but because it does the reason it doesn't is for this the mind is you haven't really meditated if you, when you really get it when you're really mindful then clarity comes can become enlightened. I was, well, I tell this story often. I was watching a monk uh, teach once, very, very venerable monk, and he was explaining when you when you see, say seeing, it doesn't. This is just giving the same teaching as he normally would. When you see, say seeing, see, and when you hear, say hearing, and then suddenly he he stopped. And and it was like he had it was it was it looked like he had fallen asleep, <laughs> but he hadn't fallen asleep. Uh, so it can happen any time. Enlightenment can come if if your really mind is really that clear. One moment is all it takes. Anyway, so that's the dhamma for today. Thank you all for tuning in. Now I suppose we have some questions. If you're on YouTube, you shouldn't be on YouTube to ask questions. Go over to meditation.surimangalo.org. The idea is that you're meditating with us. I'm now suspicious that you see we've got I've got this neat feature that uh, if your if your username is in yellow, it means you didn't actually meditate with us. <laughs> That's what that or in orange. It says logged in users, there's a list of us, and only those in green have actually meditated. So we can tell who hasn't meditated. I think there's like if you haven't meditated in the past three hours or something, you're not you're in or you get to be in orange. So we have questions. After practicing for some months, the meditation is described in the booklet. Awesome. Now I keep asking myself, is this it? I can see mental and physical phenomena come and go. And then what, I ask myself. Should I just keep recognizing these questions as thinking? You should look at them as, as probably based on some sort of defilement, that you are have a doubt or desire for something more, wanting something special to happen. It's based on your... Um, your 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 uh, original state or original inclination. The meditation isn't going to do anything for you. It's going to untie the knots. So this is kind of a knot, really, when you have doubt or when you have the desire, whatever whatever this stems from, um, desire for something more. Then uh, you, uh, you 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 have to meditate. That's that's a knot that you have to untie. So that's what I would recommend at that point.
because yeah this is it there's it's not going to take you anywhere it's not going to help you realize your desires or, or bring you some wonderful thing it's just going to untie all your knots yeah there's no shame in being orange that's okay well there's a little shame but it's okay we'll allow we'll, we, we allow we don't discriminate but now you know you can't pretend you, you can't come here and pretend that you were a meditator How do you view people with more defilements than you? Also, is the use of incense necessary for meditation? Those are two very different questions. How do you view people with more defilements than you? I guess as um, unfortunate. But you don't really, I mean, I don't really view people, you know? I mean, I think as a meditator, you 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 start to give up your your desire to judge others. It's one thing I learned so much from my teacher because even as even beginning to meditate, we still always um, think of ourselves as superior to others or uh, want to judge each other and compare with each other and uh, want to stay away from people who who are uh, problematic or so on. But he showed me that you. The correct way is to never judge anyone. You don't have to be people's judge. You don't have to fix them. It's not your job to to change other people. So you don't really judge people. And the, the, the most interesting thing I found from him is that he wasn't really all that interested in teaching people. Like I thought, hey, why aren't we out there helping the world, right? And people came to him and they still come to him in droves he's over 90 years old he doesn't teach all that much anymore because he's very tired and old but uh, people still come he's you know famous famous for what not for giving mad not for magic or giving cures but for telling people they seeing seeing and give a very simple simple practice but he doesn't go looking for students he doesn't he's not really all that interested in you know people come to him and it's almost like you have to uh, make the initiative almost it's not quite i mean he's very open and very kind and very willing to help but um, not desiring to change people and not looking at you well the other thing i noticed because i had had experience with teachers who would delve and would poke and prod and look for your problems and say when i first started i kid you not my teacher said the teacher who i was with not my my first teacher said um because i was having trouble i was having real trouble in my my foundation course and he said i don't know what's wrong um i think you must and not i think but he was sure he said there must be something you must be repressing it was like there must have some, been something that, ha- that happened when you were young, and and he was trying to get to, to figure out why I was so. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't. I wasn't that bad. In fact, I, I I was okay, but it was I was I was in great trouble because I was realizing things about myself that I was on a really wrong path, and 
but but he tried to so I, I spent all this time trying to figure out what it was that I was repressing. What was it inside that was what was this block? And I suppose a lot of it was my own interpretation because I was a little bit well, I was a young kid who didn't know anything and so but I you know there was it, it really it made things worse trying to find the the root cause the pro the the cause of all my problems and um so but but I developed that and so for a couple of years I was you know working in this way on this assumption that you have to delve and you have to figure out people's problems and then I came to practice with Ajahn Tong and Yes, he wasn't doing that. He didn't care. You know, you come to him and and you'd be all angry, and it, it would be he, it'd be like I mean, it was pretty clear that he was just basically pretending not to notice, and not exactly pretending, but not at all interested. So you'd come angry and totally, and he wouldn't even talk about your anger, and it because it works, you know. The, the person comes to you with anger and they expect you to respond to the anger. They expect you to, to, to react to it. Um, and, and so the person might be really, really angry and it would only be once they, they... And then they would say to him, you know, I feel really angry. And he would, he would say almost as though it was, it was uh, of little consequence. He would like, like he hadn't thought of it. Like, oh, well, we'll say angry, angry. And then he'd continue on with something else. Not even see because the person is making a big deal out of it, and you want them to let to, to. They're holding on to it, and you want them to let go of it. But my point here, and how it relates to your question, is um, you don't get anywhere by by relating to people, by getting involved with, getting caught up in others. I think, in a sense, Buddhism is. Um, self-centered I think you you become less concerned about really um, other people's state and it works because it's like a tree Ajahn Chah I think said he thought of himself or he thought of the Arahant as a tree the tree doesn't want people to sit under it but the tree is so perfect with its branches and with, it, with its leaves, that people look at it and they say, I want to sit under that tree because of its very nature. This is where true benefit comes from. It doesn't come from wanting to help others. It doesn't come from seeking out students, seeking, seeking out uh, beneficiaries. It comes from being beneficial, from having a beneficial nature. And you'll find that there are more people than you can help. When you really have something that you can give, you, that, that's much more important. That's what's most important. Because in the end, my teacher said many times, there's no end to, you know, he, he, he said, um, the, yeah, there's no end. You know, it never, the, the number of people, meditators is never going to end. So you just help those you can help. And what does it matter if you help 10 people or 100 people? What matters most is that you're in the right path. So anyway, a little bit beyond your question, but basically, wouldn't wouldn't think too much of of other meditators. If they want your help, then they'll ask for it, and then you can give them basic information. But you try to be as objective and uninvolved as possible. You don't try to dissociate yourself, but you don't delve either. 
too often new meditators go back and try to fix everyone else. It's not how it works. It would be so nice if everyone else got it the way you've gotten it, you, what you've realized. Wouldn't it be great if everyone else got it? But it's like uh, hitting your head against a brick wall. Eventually you realize that's not the, the path. The path is for me to go. If they want to follow the path, they're going to have to follow their path because you see it's not working. I think that's to do with your first question. The second question is... Uh, I don't use incense. I haven't lit incense in uh, quite a long time, so no, I don't think it's necessary. What expectations should a mentally ill person have about meditation? They're expected to be difficult. I mean, we're all mentally ill to some extent. It's just a matter of degree. And it can be such a great degree that you've been born with mental illness. So it's people who have organic mental illness where the brain is damaged, there's chemical imbalance or whatever. So that might take more than one lifetime. But I think we should be clear that for most of us, it's going to take more than one lifetime. Most people aren't going to become free from suffering in this life. So we do what we can. And if you find that you have a mental illness to the extent that you're not able to free yourself from it in this life, then don't think of that as a, as a limit. You know, death is not the end. Work now and better yourself. Change your habits. It's just, it's a long path, you know. Work what you can. I mean, even if you don't believe in the afterlife, do the best, you know, the, the best you can do is the best you can do. Before you die, be ready for death. But there are things you can do, and meditation is, is one of them. It can help. Don't expect too much. None of us should expect too much from meditation, but definitely someone who has mental illness should should be have low expectations and not try to raise their expectations. But work step by step. Think of it as the ads wearing away bit by bit. That's, that's how all of us are, bit by bit. Hmm. right so now you know you all have to go and do meditation so you can get a green tag but the green tag doesn't last so then you have to come back and meditate again anyway You're concerned. I'm concerned I'm not building the right kind of attention. Don't feel anything during the sitting. Well, you don't, the idea isn't to feel anything. That's not the point. If you feel something, that's a feeling. You're not supposed to feel anything. You're supposed to have a clear mind. I guess what you would feel is lack or sort of this, this like a like a fog lifting. And it'll lift for just a moment, but it's so momentary that you really have to work with it. Sitting is more difficult because it's more intense. There's no distractions. But it can be more rewarding. And you're learning something new. You, your sitting is probably done completely wrong. So just get moments where you're doing it right. Try and find the moments out of the half hour where you can do it right. 
And those little moments are what is going to change your habit. It's what are going to build a new habit, both in this life and in the future, future life. It's going to build. It's it's these little slivers that slowly, slowly wear it away. But most of your meditation is going to be rubbish in the beginning. You you don't don't worry about. Am I going to be mindful for a half an hour? How am I going to feel for the half an hour? Get a moment where you can be mindful. Start with one moment and then another moment. And the more moments you can string together and, and gather together, it's like raindrops. Eventually it can flood a whole village. All right, I think that's enough for today. Thank you all for tuning in. Check out sangha.sirimangalo.org. It's our new social network, still under construction, and i got to tweak it a little bit, but soon it's going to show all sorts of stuff when everyone has things to comment and post, and I don't know. I don't know what we'll use it for, but it's a social network, so it's a place for us to gather and be not overly social, but at least to uh, join together. Anyway, see you tomorrow.